Hello, I'm Glyn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. In this podcast, I get to know creative misfits, underdogs, wild rebels and those people who have stuck one giant middle finger up to society and live life their way. Today's guest is a novelist, screenwriter, journalist and columnist and her power and influence go way beyond the page. Through her work, she weaves in a political message about trans rights, which has given her writing an incredibly important meaning. I cannot wait to read between the lines with this one. She is such a wonderful human being. It is my wonderful friend, Juno Dawson. I'm very excited to have you on because I wanted to have you on from the beginning. I love you as a human. I love you as a writer. So I want to start by asking you, how does it feel to be a fucking icon? (laughs) Okay, going way, way back now to 2011, this was like pre-transition. I'd just signed my first book deal and I got taken out for a drink by the first ever publicist I had with my first ever publisher. And I, obviously being a gossipy bitch, I was like, okay, so who who are the worst authors and who are the best authors? Like, I love speaking to people in the media because you can normally get some amazing horror stories. But um, she was very tactful. And she said, my favorite authors are the ones where success comes a little bit later because they really appreciate it. Now, obviously, at the time, I think I would have been like 28 or something. I was kind of like, no, I want to be an overnight success. I want to be like an instant, like number one. But it didn't happen like that. You know, it happened really slowly. And there is nothing more humbling than having your first two books completely flop. Like such a flop. Like they didn't just flop a little bit. They flopped a lot. And, you know, they were liked by people who read them, but not many people read them. And I think I was a good like four years into my career before one of my books kind of really sort of achieved any sort of level of success. And so I've never particularly felt like a big deal because I've always kind of felt like I had to really fight for it. So if anything, I feel more like Scrappy-Doo, which isn't very iconic because everybody hates Scrappy-Doo. He was really annoying. <laughs> no, I, re- I relate to being Scrappy-Doo. <laughs> it is about the long game, but I think it's, what's really tough is a lot of people, when they get that first knockback, or in your case, that second knockback, they go, fuck this, I'm going to go and do something mm-hmm. else as a career. You didn't, you you carried on. So what is it about your character that kept you going, kept you fired up? I mean, I don't want to sound like Owen Jones, but because I was working class, <laughs> oh. you know, you get a lot of knockbacks. You know, I come from, and it's funny because I've been down south for so long, people don't always clock that I'm sort of from off of Bradford. And... I clocked it. Thanks. Thanks. (laughs) And I remember once I was very naive again at the beginning of my career and saying to a friend of mine, you know, nobody in publishing has ever asked me if I went to Oxford or Cambridge. And my friend turned to me and she said, that's because they would already know you. You know, had you been to Oxford and Cambridge, you would have been in the same circles for years. that's so true. So she was like, there's a reason nobody's asked you. They already know you're not Oxbridge, kind of. And I was like, oh, shit. So it's kind of, I think I was marked as being kind of not of the sort of the media classes right up front. But it it's funny being told now has always just given me a kick up the bum. And I think it might be a queer thing as well, because obviously, I don't know about you, but I can't shake it. After years of therapy, I can't quite shake this sense of I need 
to prove something to all those people who used to torment me at school. Like that ultimate thirst for revenge. It's still there. It's still in me. It never never leaves. If anything, I I don't know how you feel about this, but it is my motivation. Mm. And I wish it wasn't sometimes. I wish there was something (laughs) where I could just be motivated by the joys of life. But actually, I think when you're working class, when you're queer and working Mm -hmm. class, you A, expect the no's. And B, you end up using them to drive you forward. Yeah, 100%. And the, the, the downside of that is it doesn't matter how much you achieve, you always want more as well. Yes. Obviously, recently, the success of Her Majesty's Royal Coven has been an eye-opener because maybe for the first time in 10 years, I did sort of think, oh, actually, you can have a week off now. Like, you've achieved something that everybody recognizes is an amazing achievement. Well done off you pop to Gran Canaria for a week, which I did last week. And it was very lovely. I did nothing for seven days. I went to the Yumba Center. Babe, you've never said anything more working class in your life. <laughs> Just off, off I go. Do you know, the most, I did, have you been to the Yumbo Center? Oh, have I? I? I got asked to leave the Yumbo Center. It just, what, yes, a, what a it's strange a story not for here. place. Just what, it's, it makes not a lick it's, of sense. It's like an Arndale full of gay clubs. It's exactly that. It's blue water, but with places where people can go to rim. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially. Well, I wasn't allowed into those ones. There was there was quite a lot of men on the venues, but we went. We we did find one nice club where um, I think people maybe just thought I was like a really committed drag queen. I don't know, but um, it was we we had some great time. But it's funny because even achieving that sort of number one, you still sort of think, right? Well, what next? You know, kind of what what is still left to achieve? So I think. I wonder if as working class queer people, if we're kind of like uniquely driven, but also kind of uniquely damaged. There's so many themes that come up on this this podcast. And I've realized recently that I'm drawn to wanting to talk to queer, creative, working class people. Mm-hmm. And there's a real kinship there. How important would you say is recognition to you, um, especially because of what you've just said and where you're from? And where do you seek recognition as well? I think... That is a many layered question because I think <laughs> in the last couple of years, I have grown up. I turned 40. And it's funny because I used to t- seek validation wherever I could get it, actually. And I think throughout my 20s, I saw it in a lot of really unhealthy places. I saw it in, I, I sought validation from sexual partners or romantic partners. Then in the last few years, you know, I was seeking a lot of recognition from sort of professional things. But then in the literally in the last couple of years, I've realized that I'm a writer and that is what I'm good at. And, you know, that I don't need to be in magazines. I don't need to go on breakfast television programs. You know, there, there was a period where I was getting lots of offers to do sort of reality sort of TV stuff. And I've realized now that that is not gonna validate me that's not going to make me feel better about myself in fact if anything it will just make me feel worse about myself so now I think I've realized that I'm I'm a writer I'm good at being a writer it, it's where my talent is and then about separating the difference from being successful and being famous and I think they're two really different things oh so much and I've only yeah. just figured that one out it's taken me 40 years to realize that famous is very nebulous and very empty. It's like dead calories kind of. Whereas success 
and particularly success in my field, it can be measured in things, not just like how many copies of a book you've sold, but also in are you proud of the work you've done? Is it a book that you love? And then I'm going to do, uh, please brace yourself. I'm about to drop a name from a really great height. Drop it. Drop it away. I was in Edinburgh Festival, the Literature Festival, and I finally got to meet up with Shirley Manson, the lead singer of Garbage. And we, it was her birthday and we went out and we got some drinks and we got talking about success. And obviously Garbage were at the height of their kind of chart success at the end of the 90s. And it was kind of the same month that HMRC had gone to number one. And we talked a lot about how much esteem should you put on things like chart positions? Because actually, as long as you are happy with the work you're making, as long as you think you've made something to be proud of, it shouldn't really matter whether you win prizes or if you sell a million copies. And I think I've always held this in my head, which is I just want to keep on working because I really like the work. So I guess it's focusing on the... I hate to say this, but I'm just going to say it. The process rather than that instant hit of mm-hmm. excited, whatever your body releases, what is it? Dopamine. Mm-hmm. You get that instant rush, don't you? Of, oh my God, I'm amazing. And it's ego driven and mm-hmm. all of that. I think focusing on the process and, and the joy that that brings is such a hard thing to commit <laughs> to because let's be honest, we all have egos. We mm. all love that moment of, of gratification, don't we? So what, when you're thinking about the process and you're writing and, and the worlds especially that you create are, are so creative, you know, what inspires you to create? Well, it's funny, with Her Majesty's Royal Coven, thinking about process, I started HMRC in at the very beginning of lockdown one, basically, and when I had kind of lost my mind. I'm an anxious person anyway, so you can only imagine what a global pandemic did for that. And I kind of all thought we were going to die. Like, I really, I was not optimistic about the future of the human race. So what that meant was, it was like, well, okay, so you're stuck in your flat. You might as well write something. She can't do anything else. There's only so much yoga with Adrienne you can do. So I was like, <laughs> I was doing it quite a lot, but I was like, just write what you want to write. So it was like, I was I was contracted to write something else. And my husband was just like, what would you like to do? And I was like, well, I want to do like the craft meets the Spice Girls meets the X-Men. And he was like, well, just do it. And because I wasn't entirely sure there would be a world to release the book to, <laughs> it was almost like, just just write, just write for yourself. And, you know, I, for the last, obviously that was now two, two years ago. For the last two years, I've just been immersed in this, this fictional world, which is all my favorite things. And I think going forward, I'm going to try really hard to stick to that. To imagine you're not making this work for readers. You're not making this work for my agent. I'm not making it for my editor or the publishing industry or reviewers at The Guardian. I'm just doing it for me. And hopefully, if I'm really enjoying it, that vibe will be contagious, which is something I think you get from the work you do as well. Listening to you say that, I find that so inspiring because... I've had to remind myself of that, actually, when I think about Sink the Pink, you know, which me and Amy, when we first created that, we created that world, that space, very naively, just to fulfill and rewrite the narrative, actually, of, and I think a lot of queer people, creatives do this, whatever their, their art form is, is they're trying to rewrite the narrative of something that didn't happen in their mm-hmm. life when they were younger. There was no coincidence that, we created this 
work it we were in a working men's club for god's sake and i grew up in working men's clubs and all of a sudden i'm in a jock strap and a pair of heels in a giant wig and it's i was getting to rewrite so how much is, of, of your work is is true to that i think more now than ever before i think when you look at my work pre-transition and post-transition there is initially writing female characters was kind of my way as living as a woman and then I realized you can live as a woman in real life as well. You don't, you don't need to hide away in these fictional worlds. So now I think I'm using my novels as a way of kind of figuring out the things that are left, which is a lot of people think I made like a decision to leave young adult fiction behind, like my first however many novels were for teenagers. But with this book, it was more just, you know, I'm a grown up now. You know, I got married. I own a house. There are things I feel about aging and about seeing my friends age, my friends who have families and my friends who don't have families. So a lot of my stuff is about these are the anxieties that are playing on my mind. You know, how can I have these internal conversations with myself? And um, I think I'm not the only author who uses their work as therapy. And, and I definitely do. Yeah. You can literally look at your work and see where your inspirations come from witches, X-Men, all of these things. And um, you go one step further. And I think that you write characters that have, you know, quite big political statements in there and are pushing these things forward, like trans rights. So when you're writing that, how do do you bring that together? You know, X-Men, trans rights. Well, because you don't want it to sound like a lecture and the kiss of death in a young adult novel is kind of finger wagging and being like, sex is dangerous, drugs are bad. You know, teenagers don't want that at all. And so I I felt the same about Her Majesty's Royal Coven, which is, you know, I don't write in a vacuum. You know, it blew my mind during 2020 that even with everything that was going on, tabloids, transphobes still found plenty of time in their day to share their concerns and questions and (laughs) their fears about trans lives. And I'm like, what can I do? You know, I'm not a politician. I'm not in charge. I've tried lobbying politicians and it doesn't work. Um, So I was like, but I can do this one thing. I can write a novel. So I wanted to write about feminism as I understood it. And this kind of notion that there is some divide amongst women between women who are inclusive of trans women and women who aren't and and I wanted to explore that using my own opinions my lived experience as a trans person because I basically grew up in a matriarchy I was raised by my mum and two grandmothers a collection of aunts and cousins my sister and then when I came out, all a coven, a you coven, could say. A you coven. Could say, a coven, exactly. And these women have been nothing but accepting. You know, yes, they had questions. Yes, they were worried I might be at risk. I think, but all I've ever seen in my life is kind of cisgender women who are supportive. And so it's always kind of fascinated me that there's this notion that there is some great divide because I, it's just not something I've really witnessed. It's happening more and more, I think, within our community. We have a other week we spoke to Dustin Lance Black and we were talking about it just being how do I word this? A particularly confusing time for those of us in our community that see a level of togetherness, see a level of community. But 
seeing from the outside that we're supposed to all hate each other and that we're all supposed to be attacking each other. It it does feel, don't you think right now, that they're trying to pull us apart and manipulate us to then come back and fight each other for our differences rather than uniting us for our differences, which is what we do as a community. Mm. It's really perplexing. I mean, maybe... On, on the ground, we both live in the South. We're, we're both kind of in... I think there is such thing as a media bubble. But it feels like part of this tension is being brought about by the media because I think it makes for a nice story. You know, the warring factions of the LGBT community. It's quite a spicy headline, isn't it, kind of? But mm. on, on the ground, it's not really something I'm experiencing. I think the media wants to drive this narrative and so it's unduly amplifying those kind of anti-trans voices because it fits the narrative that they've created, which is why so many column inches are given over to sort of gender critical people or whatever they want to sort of call themselves because it kind of works for them. But, and I think I've learned this in the last few years as well, which is we can't rely on politicians. We can't rely on the media, but I think we can rely on each other. And that's why I think we have to refocus our efforts at a grassroots level. We can refocus our energy on groups like Albert Kennedy Trust. You know, we know during a cost of living crisis that LGBTQ people are going to be disproportionately affected, especially people of colour, especially trans women and especially sex workers. So I think we can sort of re-pool and resource the groups which are going to be actively helping on the ground. Yeah. Do you ever feel quite exhausted by there is this, you know, if you are a trans person that is living their life as a trans person, you're instantly essentially having to become an activist and a spokesperson. And even more so when you're out there writing trans characters or you're being interviewed, that must become really exhausting because surely at certain points you go, I'd just like to be a writer. I would just like to live my fucking life. I don't want to have to be the spokesperson for an entire group of people. Mm. And it is it is frustrating, but you, ju- you just kind of hope with each passing generation that we might be the last generation where that's true. Right. And I mean, I, I look up to people like Russell T. Davis, you know, who has always used his platform to you know, speak on politics. And I th- and I think, you know, Russell's had his turn. People have gone before him as well, you know, going way, way back to people like Christine Burns and April Ashley, all those kind of trans pioneers. And so it feels like it's okay for me to shoulder some of the burden. Um, and you, you do just hope that eventually we won't have to bother. But I think that was another thing that was kind of quite rewarding about as well as Her Majesty's Royal Coven is doing, which is people are reading this book who don't know me as sort of Juno Dawson, trans person. It's just that yeah. the book got really good word of mouth and really good reviews and and people are sharing it. Where I think, you know, witches are having a moment, although I don't think they've ever not really had a moment. Whether it's Buffy or The Craft, you know, witches are always there. Practical magic, it just keeps going. So I think people are reading the book not because of my politics, but just because it's a cracking novel. And that's how it should be, I think. Let's talk about Russell T. Davis. I mean, his name again comes up on this podcast mainly because I just think he's just wonderful, Mm -hmm. wonderful when you look at the legacy of his work. 
he could sit on his ass and do nothing. And he does not do that. And there is such clever messaging in all the work that he does mm-hmm. and, and the, that crossover into the mainstream, mainly in a sci-fi way. And I love that. Mm-hmm. And you've obviously been very seen by Russell T. Davis because you were asked to write the Doctor Who spin-off based podcast mm-hmm. for the BBC. So talk to me about that and how that mentorship, if it was mentorship from Russell, how has that impacted you? Listen, it's a funny one. So... Redacted, the podcast, came about before Russell was back on the gig. And then while we were working on it, in fact, I think Russell officially landed back at Planet Doctor Who about three weeks before we were due to record. And I think he was quite surprised that we were like, oh my gosh, and now there's this podcast in the world as well. Thank God he loved it. Because <laughs> otherwise that would have been that would have been really awkward, wouldn't it? But um, Russell knew of my work prior to Doctor Who Redacted. I think, you know, there is always that sort of like the sorority of queer Doctor Who fans. It's like it's like a community within a community within a community, kind of. Yeah. And so you always you always know it's like, ah, oh, a gay person and a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> and like like any community, we have our infights and squabbles as well. If you delve into Doctor Who Twitter, gosh, it can be it can be quite <laughs> quite spicy down there. But um but um what what's nice is that I think Redacted has meant that for the first time, Russell and I have had a project to work on together. Um, so we, we knew of each other. We've known each other for a while, but um, Redacted meant that we got to collaborate more. And and it's tricky because when you meet people, like, you know, I'm not going to name drop. Sometimes you meet your heroes and they are just fundamentally a bit disappointing and you wish you hadn't bothered. But Russell, I just, I love it. I, what I think what inspires me more than anything is how after, if you're listening to this whistle, I am sorry, after all these years, that, he, <laughs> that he's still full of ideas, that he's still bristling with ideas. And, and you know, I've been writing professionally, I think, for 12 years now, and I'm still full of ideas. And I hope in another 20 years, I'm still raring to go. And I think it's so telling that, you know, he did his stint on Doctor Who, went away for 10 years, and he has so many ideas, he's come back again. And I think that's really exciting. I found with him, there's a real level of not only kindness, but passing it forward to yeah. the next generation of writers and creatives. I remember I sent an idea to him years ago. I got given his email and I thought to myself, there's no way, no way in a million years, but you do it, right? Mm-hmm. Just Gotta screw spin it. Spin the wheel. And he emailed me back and I almost fell on the floor. And I just think that that's so admirable and something I really try to take on board. I think that storytelling is so important, telling the stories of our community. You know, I've mentioned before, we don't have that big religious book. We don't we don't have that genealogy I guess where we pass things down through our family so storytellers people like you creating characters are so important and I think it's so important to pass it forward and that's you know that's why I'm still to this day just love our community I just think that we are the best there I said it there well I agree I think because I think you know we I, I I don't think that queer people are uniquely bonded by trauma. I think we are bonded by so much more than that. And I think one of the things that bonds us is celebration, whether it's celebration yeah. in art or whether it's celebration in culture through Mighty Hoopla or Sink the Pink. You know, yes, we might have some common trauma, but we also have 
we have so much more. We have so much joy. And I think... So much joy. The artist Harry Clayton Wright always talks about radical queer joy. And I think he's right, which is these people, the, and you know which people I mean, they don't want us to be happy. You know, they want. I think they want us to be so vexed. They want us to be on Twitter fighting and defending mermaids and defending Stonewall. So actually to just let our hair down and enjoy a series like Queer as Folk, our heart stopper, to go out and dance and sing and party. You know, I think it is, it's such a fuck you. I think that it's almost the ultimate punk act, which is why people are trying to stifle our joy, is that queer people at their most joyous are so dangerous Mm -hmm. to a conservative government, to mainstream media. I think that we are unstoppable. We can change the narrative. We can rip up the sort of social norms of society. And I think that that is terrifying. Yeah. Join the coven. That is the message of my novel, which is the coven is open to all witches, you know? And I think not naming names, but, you know, would you rather join the coven, come and have fun, come and sing at the top of your voice to some crap old pop song or do you want to go on twitter and change your pronouns to um real woman pronouns wibble wobble you know how miserable how miserable to make your whole identity transphobia when you could make your whole identity loving girls aloud i mean which which would you rather kind of well i I think we i don't even need to answer that i think it's quite evident (laughs) So listen, trans writers obviously lead to trans characters. And I think that that's been really, really so refreshing to see that real change, you know, Mm. whether it be Pose or whether it be characters like um, in Heartstopper, Yasmin Finney, seeing Mm -hmm. a character that, imagine this isn't all about trauma, isn't just only identifiable by being a trans character who's going through hardship. It's been such an amazing moment, but... Like you said before, the next generation they, they, and seeing that representation, where where are they going to go next? What are your hopes for that, the next gen? So, and this is a biggie for, for both of the pies I've got my fingers in, which is both the TV world and the publishing world, which is we need trans people in positions of decision making, which is why I think Russell is so generous, because he can clearly see there are no trans people in decision making positions in the media. So I think by me having my little starting pool with Doctor Who Redacted, that for me, it feels like training for the next step, which will be to go on and have my own TV series, to be an executive producer, to be a showrunner. And, you know, within the next 10 years, I think that's realistic, actually. I think I'm I'm sort of on, on the career path, kind of. And so we need, because sometimes with visibility, you can kind of become a target, you know, and I think that yeah. that's, that's the downside of trans visibility, which is, if if you have all the visibility, but without any of the power, you can be flailing a bit. If you haven't got the infrastructure around you to protect you. You know, I've never had a trans editor. I've never worked with a trans director. You know, it, it feels when you look at who really has the power in publishing and in television, it's sometimes gay people but mostly straight people mostly white people basically i've never had a trans boss and that that feels kind of like a long way off so i i know that's not a very spicy answer but i do think that that will be true progress when we have trans people 
in positions of authority. What's been your first-hand experience of not only getting your work published, but getting the work that you really want to make with the characters that you really want to write? What's been your experience of that? And those hardships? I think possibly I've been quite lucky. So yes, my editors have always been cis women, but they're women. And I think that that's something that publishing has lots of very talented, very creative women at its heart and has for a very long time. And when I started, I think there was a real hunger to get more diverse voices into publishing. And I never felt I was being sort of harvested or manipulated or kind of exploited. It was just a case of, gosh, we are so bored of the same kind of voices. Let's get some new voices in because your voice is going to be way more authentic than somebody who is pretending to be LGBTQ. And and so I felt nothing but supported. Where you can sometimes run into trouble is that means that the people who are editing you don't really have your lived experience. And so I sometimes think they can be scared of editing you as harshly as they probably should. You know, I, I maybe I'm a freak, but I really like an editor to come back and say, really? Kind of do you like, oh, I don't know. I don't understand what this means or I don't get it. Or could you have more clarity here? And so I think something that I've been very keen on in publishing is the inclusion of further sensitivity readers, which is like this additional layer of editorial whereby Now, yes, the ultimate goal will be to hire more black editors, more trans editors, more queer editors. But until then, you can hire freelancers who can come in and basically do freelance editorial work to make sure that they have kind of properly examined the text and made sure that it is authentic. And so that's kind of how I've been working to make sure my most recent novels are as sort of authentic as they possibly can be. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise, but I think, like you said before, we do live in a little bit of a media bubble here, but we do still live in a a world that has miles and miles and miles to go. And I think freedom of speech is something that we often take for granted here. But I want to talk about one of your books being the ninth most banned books in America. It's astonishing to me. I mean, when I, I didn't know that because obviously that's not something you bring up at a dinner party, darling. But I, um, you know, when reading up on you, found that out. And it just, it's, you know, 2022 and books are being banned. Books. Hmm. It's tricky. So the book in question is This Book is Gay, which is a nonfiction guide that I wrote in 2013. I mean, it was really instrumental for me in understanding that I was trans because for the first time I sat down with a bunch of trans people and suddenly like there was this like light bulb moment of, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm trans. I'm just like you. My childhood was your childhood. Um, and it came out, it came out in the UK in 2014 and America in 2015. Nothing was said. Yes, it has a sense of humour because it's aimed at teenagers. You know, I wanted it to kind of be like, have the same sort of cheekiness of like the in-betweeners or something. Because, yeah. I mean, I could have written a super dry textbook about kind of, when you're 12 years old, you might get hair down there. But that that kind of thing already existed. Like the Usborne book of the body already existed. So I wanted to, you know, provide all the answers that I so badly needed when I was 15 or 16 years old. I didn't know what lube was. You know, I didn't know what a golden shower was. And I remembered sort of being on the playground 
and you know have somebody come up and saying ha 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 do you know what a golden shower is and i would just go yeah obviously and i didn't <laughs> yeah. i didn't i didn't know anything you know and and obviously now luckily but when i was a kid we didn't have the internet whereas now you know it, if you were a 15 year old who went home and googled golden shower you know you're just going to get pornography and so i was like right i want to you know cover everything a young person might come up against you know so that when they are ready to start going out there and dating and having sexual relationships that they're fully prepared because my 20s were a mess and i've said man i've said so many times it is a miracle i'm not dead because i put myself in some extraordinarily unsafe situations like by grace of gaia i'm still here and still thriving but um yeah i I, when, when I look back, I'm like, what were you thinking, you ill-prepared right. child, kind of? But that's it wasn't my fault. You know, I had really shit sex education. So it was kind of like, let's try and equip young LGBTQ people with everything they need to know to stay safe, be it prep, condoms, how to navigate grinder, all those things, you know. And out it went into the world. And for the best part of six years... Nobody cared. It sold really well. You know, that was, for me, the book that really changed things. You know, it's had this huge life in libraries and school libraries. Yeah. I think teachers and librarians love it because it's it's all the conversations they would rather not have as well. Exactly. But lo and behold, Trump's America. And, you know, without a shadow of the doubt, America has become more deeply divided straight down the centre. The left has got more liberal, you know, rallying around to support trans lives and Black Lives Matter and, you know, trying to counter Trump's anti-immigration rhetoric. And especially since Trump got booted out of office, I think, honestly, the right is on a crusade to just cause as much difficulty as possible. And it's very hard to see this not as a reaction to Biden winning that election, which is, fine, but we're going to ban your books. And it feels like such low-hanging fruit, and it feels so petty. But, you know, it's fundamentally upsetting, because by removing these books from libraries, which is often what they're doing, it just means that, A, a young person isn't getting the support in the book, and B, it sends out this message that there's there's something wrong with them, you know, that they are something taboo. It's playground shit. It reminds me of when I was younger, my brother, my older brother and my older sister were were tough, tough kids. Mm-hmm. So no one would ever beat me up. But what the, the bullies would do was they would hide my bag at the end of the day. It's like hiding the bag of the gay kid. Yeah. Of the queer kid. It really feels like that, doesn't it? And I find sometimes that some of the craziness that we as queer people get sucked in to have an opinion on is so beneath me. Mm. I think to myself, how am I actually even having to pass commentary on something that is so juvenile and so ridiculous? It is. And my heart goes out, actually, because I, I see a fraction of it. Sometimes I'll get tagged in something on social media, but nine times out of ten, it's some amazing poor librarian in Wisconsin. She's called Marjorie. She's lovely. She's been a school librarian for 30 years, and now she has the... Jesus Church of Wisconsin Jesus banging down the library doors saying, you are going to hell, you are paedophiles, you are groomers, you need to get this book off your shelf. Like, poor Marjorie, kind of let her do her job. This is wild, kind of. 
Well, look, we talk about flipping the narrative and I believe it was your wonderful grandmother said the best revenge against people who want to see you fail is to succeed and to succeed gloriously. Mm-hmm. Yes. Here she is, Juno Dawson, winning number one Sunday Times bestselling author. I mean, Her Majesty's Royal Coven, for me, feels very much ready for TV. It really, I mean, I'm sure, no comment, I'm sure. But it really does paint itself as something I would love to see. Um, So in a dream world, right? Mm -hmm. You've just had that show commissioned by your dream commissioner. Who's, who are playing the characters? Who's in it? (gasps) Oh my gosh. Because that's the fun bit. I will say, watch this space. Obviously, it shouldn't come as a surprise that obviously when, when a book has done as well as Her Majesty's Royal Coven, there is obviously some interest from film and TV land. I don't know if some people out there might have listened to the audiobook of Her Majesty's Royal Coven and will know that Nicola Coughlin from Bridgerton and Derry Girls has done an extraordinary job um, narrating all five of the voices in Her Majesty's Royal Coven. Um, so whatever happens, I really want Nicola to be involved um, at some stage. She's just magnificent. It's her time. We are living. It's Nicola Coughlin's world and the rest of us are just living in it. Um <laughs> I think I would love to see as Leone, who is an amazing mixed race witch who has started her own coven for witches of colour. I would be very keen to speak to Natalie Emmanuel from Game of Thrones, who was always in my head when I was writing Leone. And I adore her. She's very good vibes on social media. Um, And as Helena, who is the refined kind of posh spice of the group, she's the high priestess. Um, maybe a Natalie Dormer, who we've got a friend in common, or a Gemma Arterton, perhaps, and and then definitely. So you've you've not thought about this? No, one I've barely, bit then. barely. Well, I get, I get, do you know what? During COVID, what else? What what else could you do? Right. What else could you do? But that's why casting directors are there because they will think of someone who you wouldn't think of in a million yeah. years, and that's just like like the person who said, "I know who should be Doctor Who: Shooty Gatwa." Yes, of course. And I, I oh. might not have thought of that, but yes. Yeah, yes. totally. Look, whenever we, I have conversations with LGBTQ people, we always sadly have to lean into heaviness and themes that feel topical. Mm-hmm. I think we, we, you know, and I'm sure you, that, that happens to you whenever you do interviews and podcasts. But I, I know you enough to know that you are an absolute pop tart and you love pop culture. So I thought, what better way to end this podcast than give you some quick fire <laughs> pop culture questions? I'm ready. All right. Whenever you're ready. Do you know which Spice Girl would you be? I would love to say Posh, but it would be Jerry. <laughs> okay, who was your first celebrity teenage crush? Dean Cain in Superman. Uh, although he's <gasps> he's trash now. He's Republican trash now. But Dean Cain, oh, oh, that jawline, yeah, oh. unbelievable. What's your favourite bar on Canal Street? Um, probably GAY. It's like one pound fifty for a spirit and mixer. I believe it's gone now. So <clears> RIP. <throat> How would people describe your behaviour at a party? In the kitchen, <laughs> not moving. I, so I, I like to be the hub. I like people to come to me. I'm, I'm That's very very very, po- very poor at mingling. Um, usually to be found to be found in the kitchen commandeering the playlist often as well there you go mm-hmm. um, my name is Juno Dawson and at Halloween I dress as <laughs> um, Nancy from the craft was my best yes. ever Nancy from the craft was my best ever costume which is perfect segue into my final question is Juno Dawson a witch of 
course. I was a queer teenager, of course. Oh, this is so lovely. It's been amazing catching up with you. I feel like um, we have a lot more stuff now to talk about when we are straddled across each other (laughs) at at an attitude event Mm -hmm. um and i'm so so happy that we got to do this do you know do you know what i love i think in london in particular you have your vodka friends and you have your cup of tea friends and i'm really enjoying our evolution from vodka friends into cup of tea friends Uh, and i think it's lovely one day we shall just sit down and have a lovely cup of tea and it'll be lovely i can't wait for that Mm -hmm. i am definitely at that point in my life where i am a cup of tea friend It's the best kind of friend to be. Thank you, darling. Thank you.